0: As you start to scale a business, it's similar to flying a plane and you have to fix the plane while you're flying and you don't want to accelerate too quickly because there's still things continuously you have to fix. You know, if you're not comfortable with being misunderstood for long periods of time, you shouldn't do anything new or interesting. When it comes to investors saying yes or no, there are times where you have to say, hey, I firmly believe in what we're building and be misunderstood for long periods of time. It's important to build strength through adversity. And so as things get more difficult and things will always be very hard, no
1: matter what you do, you should find strength. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Sarah Fryer from Square, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, and many others. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Also, I want to tell you about our sister podcast, 996 a bi-weekly show on tech entrepreneurship in China hosted by my fellow managing partner at GGV Capital, Hans Tung, and our colleague, Zara Zhang. In the show, they interview movers and shakers of China's tech industry as well as tech leaders with a U.S.-China cross-border perspective. It's a fantastic show, and I've learned a ton from these interviews. You can take a listen by searching for 996 in any podcast app. Without further ado, here's today's episode. So welcome to this live recording of Founder Real Talk. I'm excited to be joined by my partner, Jeff Richards. Uh, Jeff's one of my partners at GGV Capital and is gonna be our guest host for today. I'm Glenn Solomon, the host of Founder Real Talk, and we're recording live from Doors San Francisco headquarters. Our guest is Eric Wu. Eric's the co-founder and CEO of Opendoor. Door is a consumer technology company that's reinventing how people buy and sell residential real estate. Prior to Opendoor, Eric was the founder and CEO of Movity, a YC company focused on geodata analytics that was acquired by Trulia in 2011. At Trulia, Eric led location, social, and consumer product development. Eric was also the co-founder of Rent Advisor, which was later acquired by ApartmentList, and he's run a real estate fund since his college days, that's invested successfully in hundreds of properties. So Eric really knows real estate. Eric's also an active investor and advisor to a number of startups and social enterprises. I first got to know Eric in mid-2014. Opendoor announced its Series A funding right about then. It was led by Keith Raboy from KV, and Keith was kind enough to introduce me to Eric. And I quickly became obsessed, as Jeff can assess, with Opendoor. I met Eric once a month through the end of 2014, and GGV preempted a Series B financing in early 15. So I've had the pleasure of serving on Eric's board now for more than three and a half years. Eric, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thanks for having me. We're excited for you to be here. Uh, Maybe you could start uh, by just giving us a little bit of an overview of what Open Door does and talk about uh, the creative spark that you had to start this company and what problem you were trying to solve. Sure, so Open is four years old, the the core problem we're solving is that
0: uh, selling a home today takes 90 days, and there's a 10% chance a deal falls through. So it's a lot of time, a lot of hassle, and our customers say it's emotionally grinding. It's one of the more complicated and painful experiences uh, one goes through. And so at Open Door, we enable homeowners to go online, uh, get an offer instantly, and sell your home in just a few clicks, and we deliver simplicity, certainty, and speed. So we've taken this 90-day process full of uncertainty and hassle and made it a few simple steps online. In terms of how the organization got started, I, I think there wasn't a specific spark, or an, a, you know, a point in time in which there was this aha moment. I think a lot of founders talk about how oh, there's this aha moment. I think for me, it was just spending 10-plus years in, in the category and, one, understanding customers deeply and, and, and building a lot of empathy for the challenges that people go through and just an obsession over the problem space. I, I think that... Having done two other companies in real estate tech, uh, moving is a really, really complicated process, and it's one of the most important decisions anyone makes, is where to live and, and what to buy, and so envision a world where people can do it themselves and they can do it online, and, and it would be hassle-free, and, and uh, open door
1: was the evolution of that. So, you know, it's a pretty revolutionary idea. You were joined in the journey by your co-founders, Ian, JD, and Keith. How did you think about assembling that founding team you know, this is not your first rodeo, you've done this before, changes you made or thoughts you had specifically about the type of founding team you wanted and and your early employees that you maybe learned, lessons learned from from other prior ventures?
0: When we started Open Door, it kind of laid out, you know, 12 steps. And and really the the formation of the team was built on top of what are the key milestones we need to hit at each step. And so we knew we needed to build a world-class pricing model that can price homes in real time, mm-hmm. that was better than what existed. So you know, we brought on a very talented data scientist as a co-founder. We know we needed to build a consumer product that people would be willing to trust to sell the home online. We knew we needed capital. We knew we needed to be operationally excellent. And So as we thought about filling out the team and, and what the, both the founding team and the early employees looked like,
2: it was largely based on what are the key milestones that we need to, we need to hit. Eric, as you guys uh, launched the business, the first market you went after was Phoenix. Talk a little bit about that. Why Phoenix? How Phoenix? I mean, and it's a story that probably isn't well-known here in Silicon Valley. A lot of folks here don't spend a lot of time in Phoenix, but that was the first market you guys went after, and it's been hugely successful. Can you just talk a little bit about that?
0: Well, we, we believe that Phoenix was largely representative of, of, rest of the of rest of the country, and so at the time, the average median sales price was 240000 approximately, and, and Phoenix was... 237 at the time. And, and, and Phoenix itself has, the housing stock is more homogenous. And so there's two dimensions that, that matter there. One, it's, it's easier to price. And so building a pricing model that was accurate would, would, is easier in Phoenix. And the second dimension is that actually the, the housing stock is a little bit newer. And so the, the condition is, is much better in Phoenix. And so the, the amount of repairs necessary to, to sell the home would be lower in Phoenix. Uh, but ultimately, we believe that Phoenix itself represented the vast majority of the housing stock in the U.S., which is approximately seventy percent of the housing stock is similar to Phoenix, and we felt that we can build a very big business uh, launching markets like Phoenix. And it's worked. And it's worked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe talk a little bit about the growth you've seen in Phoenix since since inception there.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're proud about is that um, the business model is unique and it, it's it's bold. But I think the the experience we're delivering to consumers is excellent. And you know in Phoenix, we're coming on 5% market share just after a handful of years. Our conversion is over 50%, so one in two sellers who come to the site receive an offer, say yes to, to open door. That's extraordinary. And so we've shown that uh, consumers prefer a hassle-free
1: online experience over selling the traditional way. So obviously, look, the growth in Phoenix getting to close to 5% has, has been phenomenal. At some point, as you grow in a business like open doors, where you're going market by market, you have to make that decision about um, when is it time to move beyond your first market? You know Maybe you could, you could have built Open Door just in Phoenix, but you, you aspired to more than that. Why did you decide to launch in that one market, and when did you know it was time? What, what were the, the, the things you wanted to see before you decided, OK, now we can move beyond Market One and start rolling this out into other markets?
0: Yeah, so it sounds like you know, the two questions are, why one market to start, and then how do you decide to launch other cities? Well, I mean, startups are very hard. <laughs> and so there's two critical pieces for us, which is focus matters a lot. And if you're doing too many things at the same time, then you can't focus. And so uh, we felt that launching one city and demonstrating that the business can work in a city was important. And the second is we believed, and we still believe, it's very important to, to dog food the product. And so you know, we want to shorten the feedback loop and, and time to iterate. And so launching one city, talking to customers every day was really important as opposed to trying to go uh, broad start. We had a couple of things that mattered as we thought through the expansion plan. One is we, we needed to believe that Phoenix was trending in the right direction. And these decisions are very difficult and you've been part of the board and part of the conversation of these decisions, but we needed to have confidence that Phoenix itself was trending in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Because as you start to scale a business, it's similar to flying a plane, and you have to fix a plane while you're flying, and you don't want to accelerate too, too quickly, because there's still things continuously you have to, you have to fix. You know, I, I think the decision to launch a second market was important to, to us and the board because we wanted to show that after we got Phoenix off the ground and there was product market fit and it was growing very quickly, uh, that this wasn't a Phoenix-specific business, it a Phoenix-specific experience. And so we chose Dallas, uh, and it was different than Phoenix because... One, the, the housing stock was less homogenous, actually. It's, it's older, it's more expensive. And the second piece is it's actually a faster market than Phoenix. It, it um, was appreciating very quickly at the time. We wanted to show that not only could the business model work in a modest appreciation market like Phoenix, but also in a, in a very, very hot market like Dallas.
2: And nobody's ever done what you guys are trying to do at the scale that you're doing it at. Let me kind of switch to a personal question, but how has your role changed from being founder, CEO early on with kind of five, 10, 15, 20 people to where you guys are today? Or even as you went through that expansion to Dallas and beyond there, how did your role change and how did you have to kind of personally think about your role changing and, you know, change the way you acted with with the team?
0: Yeah, I actually think this is pretty challenging for most uh, founders. But early on, the general rule is everyone works on product market fit or growth. And anyone who isn't shouldn't be part of the organization. So extreme focus on product market fit, whether it's reviewing mocks or you know, taking phone calls with customers and unblocking uh, growth. Uh, but as a company found product market fit as we started to scale, it, it wasn't an easy transition. I think there's two things that had to change for me. One was moving from an IC to a manager. And uh, I think when you're a founder, you have a tendency to want to fix things yourself. You want to dig into things and, and be solutions oriented. I think uh, one of our core values is to empower others and really have to live by that, by you know, coaching, mentoring, and, and delegating and holding people accountable. And then the second dimension, which is a little bit more personal, is just, uh, you switch from being a peer to a lot of your, the folks around you to being a boss. You have the transition from being you know, everyone's best friend to being their boss, and it, it, is, a, it is a different relationship. So those are are the dimensions that's uh, changed for me. I I think one of the things that's exciting about the growth that we've experienced is that um, my job has changed every single year, and and I think that's by design. I think that my goal is to hire myself out of a job every single year. So what I'm doing today, I should be hiring executives around me that do the job that I do today, and that should happen every single year because the company's growing so quickly that my role has to change.
2: And did you have coaches or mentors that helped you make that change? I mean, it's, a, it's like you said, every founder goes through this, but it's so hard. Did you have people that you reached out to in your network who helped you do that?
0: Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in coaching. I think one of the core competencies of a manager is to be a great coach. And so uh, I had um, a handful of executive coaches. I've had um, mentors help me through this process and a very strong board. And so one of the things I did early on, which was actually a byproduct of my last company, uh, was I... I, I found a lot of value in having a network of angel investors that were also operators. And if they're shareholders, you, you, don't, you feel more comfortable reaching out for uh, help when you need it, and, and they have incentive to help you. So you know, we, had a, we had a bunch of
1: investors in our seed round uh, that are also operators, CEOs of other companies. Jeff has been outspoken in uh, his view, which I've, I've come to appreciate, that it's very important for startups to think about bringing on a head of talent or head of people pretty early on in a company's life cycle, and I'd say that's not typical of most startups. You guys brought on Erica Alioto to run the people function uh, here at Open Door. She had a, has a non-traditional background for that role. Um, why'd you make that decision? And she's had a lot of positive influence. But where do you where do you see the benefits of someone like with her skill set coming into a company like yours?
0: Yeah, when we, when we were thinking about hiring ahead of people, you know, kind of my definition of talent is someone who can recruit great talent, someone who can help coach and mentor talent, and someone who can help retain talent, the kind of three core functions. And we knew we needed someone with content knowledge, but actually I preferred someone who was a true executive, uh, someone who could be a thought partner, be a business executive and, and drive outcomes uh, as that partner. And so, uh, when I met Erica, it was actually four years ago, and she was the Senior Vice President of Local Sales at Yelp. She actually helped advise the company on what it meant to build a sales organization. And, you know, all of us were taking the phone calls, and she was giving advice on how to structure those phone calls. And so, I've known her for a long time as an advisor. And what impressed me most about Erica was not only has she led an organization from two people to 3,000 and through international expansion, uh, but she has incredible intuition around culture, uh, around what motivates uh, people and inspires people. And so as we thought through the decision whether we wanted to go with someone with, with a lot of content knowledge and experience or hire an executive who we can then pair someone who had the content knowledge, we went with the kind of executive route, like the operations route. How's and that it's, work out? That's been incredible. I actually think that um, more people should, Look at certain functions, not all functions, but certain functions is how do we hire the best possible executive and then teach them the content they need to be successful as opposed to let's hire the person with the deepest experience in this one
2: specific field. It's a pretty contrarian view in Silicon Valley. People generally look for what's the last job in your resume. I mean that's a that, that would be a pretty interesting view if that started to become the prevailing wisdom in Silicon Valley.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it applies to every single function. Obviously, you know, we, our CTO should have experience with technology. <laughs> but one of the things we talk a lot about internally is, you know, we, we want to we place bets on slope and not always on intercept. And so I think we're comfortable saying, hey, this person's got a ton of natural talent. They have a lot of work ethic. They have a growth mindset uh, and they have experience in other ways that uh, combined with the ability to, to grow uh, can
2: proved to be truly great, so we're excited about that. And Open Door is a business that obviously you guys have very big ambitions, requires a lot of capital to do what you're doing, and you've been very successful in financing the business along the way. You've, you've pulled in you know, good investors early on, we were lucky to be part of that, and then have successively brought in new rounds of capital from there. Can you just talk a little about some of the, some of the pros and, and maybe some of the challenges that you've, you've had in financing or maybe share a, a war story that would be helpful for people to hear? Because it's, it's such a hard part of building a company and it's something that nobody's really trained to do and then you're thrown into the ring as a founder and asked to go raise capital and you guys have done it so well. Just talk a little about how you've done that.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think it's a, a useful skill to master, honestly. <laughs> um, I think it's very, very important to, to articulate your vision. And fundraising hones that skill and so, and that applies to hiring people and convincing teammates not to quit and rallying the troops. And so honing the craft of articulating your vision is very important in fundraising. I think, I think Opendoor is, is um, capital is an advantage for us and we believe it, it can be a competitive moat. But it's been challenging for us because we have two sets of capital that we need. So we have the equity capital, the fund R&D, and to hire great engineers and great data scientists and great product folks and designers. We also have the debt financing that's necessary to run a principal business in real estate. And both actually elements require education. So when you're pitching equity investors, you have to educate them on uh, why our approach is different, why it's important, why it matters. Uh, And then we have to educate uh, debt partners why this business is not risky. And so... Uh, the incentives are misaligned where equity investors want massive bets and huge upside, and then uh, debt uh, investors want downside protection. And so I think we've spent a tremendous amount of time educating both equity investors why this is a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity and why this is an industry-defining company, as well as educating our debt partners as to why the asset class itself is is relatively safe and why the model itself uh, is different than what they see out there. I think we've done a good job of, of educating uh, both parties as to why open door is unique.
1: As Jeff mentioned, capital in your business, not always easy to raise, and, and you've, you've obviously done an amazing job. On the debt side, obviously the, the dynamics are quite a bit different than going and talking to VCs. How have you staffed up, because the, raising the kinds of debt you've raised, not typical for Silicon Valley startups. How have you staffed up that part of the business to be best in class and to deal with the demands of the partners that you've got now and that will continue to, to grow in the future?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's partly a recognition of what is important in the organization, right? So ultimately you want incredible talent in every department, but you have to sequence that and you have to figure out what is, what is critical to success and to reach milestones. I think the, the funny story that I always tell is that early on I was our CFO, head of cattle markets and everything. And uh, I wasn't- I, um, I remember those days, I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't trained to, to do this well, so uh, you kind of just you just do what it takes. And um, that's required of being a you know, founder. And the, the story that I like to tell is that I, one of our first debt partners, I, I'll leave uh, names out of this. <laughs> the person, she was sitting across from me and she asked me, Eric, what is the advance rate you would like? And me being a first-time head of capital markets uh, didn't quite understand what that meant, and so I asked uh, this person, well, what do you think is fair? And, and those were the terms that were set. And so you, know, you kind of take the learnings around, hey, this is a complex part of our business that's really important. I need to quickly uh, spin up knowledge there myself. And then we hired very senior folks over time. And part of that is, again, going back to the can you articulate the vision for the organization very clearly, we were able to convince very seasoned uh, finance folks to join the company very early, even though we
1: were 15 people kind of just trying to get the business off the ground. You know, when we were negotiating for the Series B, (laughs) I didn't hear you say, what do you think is fair? (laughs) Uh, Well, I I understand how the equity raises go, so. (laughs) Okay. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, I was open door obsessed from the moment I heard about the company, I had a chance to meet you, and, and as Jeff can attest, I think our whole partnership was super excited about the opportunity to work with you, but you've faced tons of naysayers along the way, both in the VC community, in the press, there's a lot of non-believers out there. Has that been hard for you to deal with, and why do you think that is, and, and how have you tried to use that you know, disbelief that's out there in the market to your advantage?
0: Well, I, I think that's, Normal. I, I think it's part of the journey. I, yeah, I think what defines great founders is look into the valley of death and take a step forward and, <laughs> and to be comfortable with failure at, at all stages um, and continue to walk down that, that valley. I really like this saying, which is, you know, if you're not comfortable with uh, being misunderstood for long periods of time, you shouldn't do anything new or interesting. And so I think it's important to accept no. I, I think it's just part of the journey, and you, know, you, you wanna do something really bold, and by definition, it, it can't be consensus-based. One of the things we talk about internally is to have a Hulk mentality. And what that means to us, is kind of a silly phrase, but what it means to us is to... Like the uh, Incredible Hulk. Like the Incredible Hulk, Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not that geeky, now, but... Uh, uh, Nor are
1: you green. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I, what it means to us is that it's important to build strength through adversity. And so as uh, things get more difficult and things will always be very hard, uh, no matter what you do, uh, you should find strength. And so when it comes to investors saying yes or no, I, I think there are times where you have to say, hey, I, I firmly believe in what we're building
2: and uh, be misunderstood for long periods of time. So Eric, speaking of things getting more difficult, as you guys have grown the business, you, you really pioneered this category. You kind of you know, invented the category from a technology industry perspective. Now you're notably attracting some competition. Startups that have tried to sort of replicate your model as well as larger public companies. How are you thinking about that? How are you guys dealing with it? It's always an interesting moment because it's validation for what you're doing, but it also is like, oh wow, we better be really good at what we're doing. How have you guys dealt with that?
0: Well, what we say internally is that we should be customer obsessed and competition aware. And one of the things that's important to acknowledge is that we should be humble enough to realize that ideas can come from anywhere and anyone. And so we should monitor our competition and understand are they doing something different that is better for the customer? Is there something unique that there some, some approach that's different from ours that is better servicing the customer? And if that's the case, then we should not take it lightly, uh, but we should focus
1: on what we're trying to accomplish, which is build the world's best customer experience. So speaking of customer experience, having had the opportunity to, to, to buy and sell some residential properties in my life, I can say that it's, and I think this is true for most people, it's not a pleasant experience, uh, at least pre-Open Door. Talk a little bit about how you're trying to re-engineer that process, how you gauge whether or not you're, you're being successful changing that customer experience, and how do you try to learn when you hear about an experience gone awry in the open door model, how do you try to learn from that as an organization?
0: Yeah, and this is, this is you know, the work is never finished kind of thing. So we kind of believe that in the future of real estate, people will be able to buy, sell, and, and trade homes at the click of a button. So frictionless and hopefully without cost. And so there's a long ways uh, to go until that that world exists, but uh, we think it's possible. You know, the the second part of your question around, you know, how do we measure this, it's tricky, honestly. I think it's a combination of both data and and intuition. So we we track similar things, probably most companies, conversion, MPS, but we wanna pair that with uh, having our organization, our product leaders, and our engineers use the product so we can build great intuition and also talk to customers. And so you're combining both uh, data and, and judgment to improve the customer experience. The third party question is
1: around when you have, failures. When you, when you have some failures, uh, I mean you have some wonderful f- photos up around your office of people you've helped buy and sell homes. And that must feel great for you and, and for all the employees uh, to know that you're having that kind of impact in people's lives, but it, it doesn't always work. And when it, when it hasn't worked, when you've gotten bad feedback, how have you tried to learn from that feedback? I think we do standard stuff, like
0: uh, retros and, and, and post-mortems. You know, one of the things that uh, we try to do is still operate as a startup, and I'll give you kind of a, a story of when we launched the 24-7 open house access. I don't know if you remember this, I this remember. moment, but yeah, <laughs> we, kind of, we kind of had this idea where we, we can allow our customers to enter houses themselves on their schedule anytime, seven days a week, and the poor customer experience was that we forced people to text message in a photo of their driver's license and a photo of a credit card, and we were just hand- handling this manually on our side, and then giving people a code that stayed the same. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that is a uh, a bad customer experience. <laughs> and what we wanted to do was first validate that the behavior was that there's demand for that experience. And then, and then scale it. And so right. you know, what we try to do is balance moving fast with, with learning. But in terms of something unique that we do that maybe not every organization does on the mistake side is we do a pre-mortem uh, for any big launch, which is trying to identify what are the reasons why this is going to fail. Mm. And so you can try to address those early on. So obviously making mistakes after you've launched is, is uh, costly.
2: Yeah, w- one of the things that we deal with in our world as venture capitalists is trying to fund companies that are thinking big and taking big risks. And one of the things that you hear from entrepreneurs is, hey, I'm all for that and I want to take the big risk, but I also don't want to crash and burn. How, how do you guys think about, I mean, you're, you're taking some big risks, you're expanding quickly, you're hiring a ton of people, you guys are trying to accomplish a lot. And as you said earlier, it's hard. So how do you guys think about the risks that you take and the risks that you propose to take with the board or your investors and balancing that with the reality of day-to-day execution and just kind of the, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to balance risk and reward, but how how do you guys think about that?
0: Well, I I would say like my job as, as the CEO is to look at two forms of risk. One is what's gonna crater the company, what's gonna be zero, and make sure that we're managing those risks appropriately. And you have to have a different mentality when you think about those types of risks. You have to be overly paranoid and, and um, very detail-oriented. And then there's the other risk, which is not taking big bets and getting too complacent, not involving the, the product, not involving the experience. And you also want to have risks there so that you can have 1,000x uh, or 100x. And so I kind of view it as two, two separate types of risk. One is how do you manage a zero uh, appropriately and make sure you're not taking on any risks there, and then what are the big bets you want to make? We talked about this at the board level, I think it's situational that you have to have alignment with your board and the organization, and in one of probably many board meetings I've said that uh, it's not sufficient for us to be a low market share type of business and we want to win the category. And so by definition, uh, as we have success, the size of our failures have to grow as well because if we're going to accomplish that, that vision, we have to place big bets and the slope has to continue to be more steep over time. So we want to build a category winner. As a result, you have to continually be to be comfortable with with bolder bets.
1: I want to drill into that a little bit more because culturally that's not an easy thing, right? To both be very disciplined about avoiding potential mortal risk, but at the same time being willing to take big bets that can fail. And yours is a business where you have to execute well every day. But at the same time, like you said, it's a risk to, to end up complacent and miss the big opportunity by not going for it. How do you build a culture that kind of flexes in both ways, that can reward uh, discipline and at the same time also uh, encourage risk-taking?
0: Yeah, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's an easy thing. And, and so we actually talked about this at the last board meeting, which is we need huge parts of our organization to care about every percentage point and do that every week for 52 weeks. And we talked about they have to eat bips for breakfast. <laughs> Eating you know, bips care, for breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> care, care about every little cent in the system so that we can deliver a better experience at a lower cost to our customers. And you have to couple that with a handful of bets and that's why you know, I'm a big believer in portfolio theory and so you have to have kind of organization, the organization set up where there's teams that can uh, take big swings because those swings can change the slope of the, the company. So I think having a different set of KPIs uh, for teams that are, are betting big and being comfortable with failure is also very important. Because so, if I said, hey, I need you to deliver this in a quarter and I need it to be correct four to five times, you're not gonna take the big
1: swing. Okay, let's sum this up. You've talked about the problem you're trying to solve and the culture you're trying to build. What does success look like for you? When, when does Open Door become something you feel like, okay, I, I've, I've done what I wanted to do here? What does that look like, and, and how are you going to go achieve that?
0: When I've returned the fund for GGV. No, <laughs> okay, I, good. I, that's I, the right I, answer. Honestly, yeah.
1: Prayer emoji. No, I, um,
0: you know, honestly, I, I think there's, there's, there's three different things I want to accomplish, and, and, and that will make me personally fulfilled. Uh, one, for customers, is that uh, they can tra- transact with no friction and no cost. For Open Door, my hope is that we accomplish our vision, right, and our mission, and, and that will take many years. And then for the team at the company, it's that they can do their best work of their careers and, and feel really proud of the impact they've had. And so, you know, down the th- down those three dimensions, that's what I define success. And GGV could be a a, a byproduct of that success.
1: We'll we'll take it. Yeah. We like being the byproduct of that. Okay. Eric, we're going to do the quick fire round now to wrap up. We're going to ask a couple of questions, just answer with what comes off the top of your head, and just, just a minute or so for each answer. Returning the fund. No, yes. I, I, right answer. I'm <laughs> okay. First question You're fond of asking other people, when interviewed, what their superpowers are. What's your superpower, and how's that helping you be a good CEO? I'm good
0: at board games, so I like Catan, I like Seeker Hitler, which is a weird game we play here at Open Door <laughs> with a really bad name, um, you know, I like chess, I used to play a lot of poker, so you have to be good at problem solving and you have to be comfortable with not a lot of information uh, to be good
1: at board games. Hmm. Interesting. I, I was, the answer I would give if someone asked me what your superpower is, uh, which is I think related, is that you are able to stay calm and deliver, you know, at your best while under stress. And I think you also need that skill to be good at at games and and, and poker where you have limited information and have to make important decisions fast.
0: Yeah, I actually think one of the most important, I hate to go on a tangent about poker, but one of the most important things about poker that I actually took into the business world, which is um, you can only measure the inputs. So you can play a hand perfectly and still lose. Same for business. So you just wanna make sure you're doing everything you can to optimize the inputs into the outcome and then not be upset by the outcome because there's a degree of luck in
2: actually everything that we do. What's something you believe that most people don't?
0: I would say that uh, I believe that the CEO's job is to make no decisions, because you've hired a team uh, around you that's much, much better than you. And so uh, my goal is to make no decisions.
1: No, 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 no. it's the board's job to make no decisions. The CEO (laughs) is supposed to tell the board what to do. Very fair. Okay. How about your favorite book that you recommend for, for founders and leaders to read? Oh, this one's easy. High Output Management by Andy Grove.
0: <laughs> we forced the board to read this as yes. well. At Open I, was, Door. I,
1: was, I was shamed at an earlier board meeting yeah. for not having read that book, but I have now read it.
0: Yeah, it's a good How book. about another one? Uh, you know, I just read a book recently that I, that I liked. Uh, I'm not sure it's directly applicable to all founders, but uh, it's never split the difference. It's a book on negotiations.
1: Last one.
2: The Entrepreneur You Admire Most and Why?
0: I'll go with an obvious one, because we have a lot of Amazon DNA, so I'll go with Jeff Bezos, and I think the the reasons why is, one, he's shown incredible persistence and resilience as a CEO, to not only optimize an incredibly difficult problem, but also place big bets along that path, and I think he built
1: Amazon the way that he wanted to. Great, well, Eric, really want to say thank you for joining us for Founder Real Talk, especially here in front of a live audience at your headquarters. It means a lot to us that you would do this for us, on our launch day as well. Uh, It's been a great episode. I think people are going to love it. Uh, We're looking forward to being part of uh, the rest of the Open Door journey. And it's it's just exhilarating to hear how big your vision is for the company. So thanks a lot for joining and and sharing your, your thoughts on it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Karstensen and his team at Heavybit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000 from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception, including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com.